Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Good evening and welcome to Breaking the Silence. This is Greg Williams and welcome to my home here in the most beautiful city, I believe, in this country, Houston, Texas. And we have a guest tonight that is just going to absolutely uh, glue you to your screen, uh, to your cell phone. You're going to be listening so closely, you may have to pull over on the side of the car to understand and catch all the depth of this unbelievable story tonight. And um, so I want to welcome you to the program. There's several different ways to watch tonight. I want to make sure that if you want to comment, uh, we are not live. This is Friday, uh, December 8th, uh, early in the morning here in Houston. Uh, we pre-recorded this because our guest tonight is on the other side of the world. And I think sometimes they say it's across the pond. And uh we're on the other side of the world, so uh, we won't be able to take live calls tonight, but I don't know if we would have time because the story is so detailed, so traumatic, so encouraging and inspirational, though, on the other side of this, that you're going to just want to set back, write some of this stuff down. I want to make sure that you write the title of the book down because you're going to want to, and I promise you, uh, you're going to want to buy this book. Uh, and maybe give it away uh, for gifts, buy several copies uh, for the holidays. But uh, I wanted to welcome to the program uh, tonight, uh, Natalie Karoche. And I want to make sure she'll uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But Natalie, welcome to the program tonight. And uh, I want to give a little bio on you. But can you hear me okay and everything's okay over there? I can hear everything really well. So thank you, Greg, and good evening, everybody listening. Thank you, Natalie. You know, I'll tell you what, every morning there's I, I go through uh go through the trauma that I went through. I, I'm very OCD. But when I get to the office, I, I go through uh so many steps and then just to catch up on the world, I go on to Daily Mail and I read, I go from the top to the bottom of the Daily Mail just to catch the news, uh, what's happening. And I came across this story that was all about you. And it came out in August uh, 27th of this year, which I thought, this is strange. Okay. So it was uh, an attack that happened on you seven years ago. And it was republished. It was told the story. It told how everything was going on with you uh, up to that point. 
But uh, when I read that, I immediately tried to find you. I immediately reached out to you, started fighting, trying to find out how can I, and I think I believe I got on LinkedIn and caught uh, a post that you had put or somebody had reached out to you on there. And because I normally don't communicate on LinkedIn, I don't do much social media anyway. Um, and I reached out to you and in your kindness, uh, within a few days, you wrote back and said, hi, how are you? And, and we started talking and I got you. But, you know, uh, just to do a, a brief in, uh, introduction, and then we'll, I want you to just take the show and run with it. Uh, you're a founder of a nonprofit company working with young people. That's the heart of my life to prevent youth violence and empower them to live their best lives alongside running your own motivational speaking company. Uh, you have done TEDx's. You have done interviews, uh, programs more than I've ever dreamed of, and you are a highly sought-after motivational speaker. You have a wonderful website. You are a coach, a mentor, uh, a multi-award-winning uh, author, uh, and additionally, you have been recently uh, given or awarded the Royal Honor Medal. So now you get the, the wonderful distinction to have M-B-E following your name, uh, which is, means member of the British Empire. And um, you had the, uh, the invitation to attend, and I'm sure you did. We'll talk about this, uh, the late Queen uh, Elizabeth's funeral. And um, I watch parts of that with my OCD every single day. And I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, too. And just to think that you were in the audience of that uh, is unbelievable. But in 2016, um, in a normal, wonderful life, uh, working in a large pharmaceutical company, it all stopped when... At eight months pregnant, uh, you were literally found yourself fighting for your life. And on the street, when a man yielding a 12-inch carving knife stabbed you 24 times and literally left you for dead. Mm -hmm. And you overcame that, and it's an inspiration. Natalie, I'll let you tell the rest of the story, but I just want to say uh, good evening to you and welcome to the program. It is my honor to have you here and to get to share a few moments of your life with us, uh, me and the radio listeners. So welcome, Natalie. How are you today? I'm really good. Thank you. Really good. It always sounds quite bizarre when I listen back to <laughs> the things that have happened. The fact that I did go to the late Her Majesty the Queen's funeral an incredible woman. It was an incredible event. And um, we'll get to it later. I was actually on the front row, which was even more bizarre. Um, people were watching it on Sky News and screenshotting it to say, Natalie, we can see you. <laughs> so. I have to watch for that because there's a song that was, I believe it was a celebration uh, of the life. And I'm not for sure it was during the same weekend or not. Um, and the opera singer sang a song, Nisam Dorma. And I, I, I watched that constantly. Uh, and it is an unbelievable because that, that encourages me every day. And I watched that probably 10 times a day, seriously. Yeah, it was 
it was a very powerful ceremony for an amazing woman who achieved so much in her life. Um, the grandmother of our nation, she really was, and the mother of our nation, really. So she has been a massive loss and a real privilege to be there. But I can tell you all about that. I can tell you about how I managed to find myself wandering across Parliament Square in London, which is obviously where all the Houses of Parliament seat of government is. And I suddenly realised that I was wandering around by myself and there were armed police all around me. But luckily they knew that I was at the funeral, so I wasn't in any danger. But um, it was an amazing day with its little funny moments as well. So, yeah. Nelly, life prior to, just months prior to, uh, this tragic uh, attack, in 2016. Tell me about what life looked like with you. It looked like, according to the pictures that I have seen and read and all the, the it looked like a fairly happy, go lucky life. Tell me about life prior to and then leading up to the event. Yeah, absolutely. So if we rewound eight years ago, and so therefore we would be at the very end of 2015, I was pregnant with my third child. I'd had two children from a previous marriage, which unfortunately that marriage broke down when my children were quite young. But I get on absolutely fine with my ex-husband. He's a really good man. We just didn't work out. We've still got a very good relationship, friendship. And I was together with my new partner, Bobby, who I'd known right back from school days. So to set the scene... I split up from my husband. I was a single mother of two fairly young children working full time in the pharmaceutical industry, very busy career, away a lot of management meetings, having to have family support with childcare, um, life as it can get very hectic, very busy, very focused on where I was going, leading a nice life, as you say, because, you know, we did have money, we had a nice house, everything was all good. I did a bit of online dating. That was dreadful. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who have had to endure that at some point. Yes, just dreadful was my experience. I did three months and that was it. Forget it. And then I got together with my partner, Bobby, who I'd known since my childhood days. And actually, when I got together with him, my friendship group from school was actually married, weirdly, to a lot of his friendship group. So they'd all stayed together, had families. So when I got together with Bobby, everyone was so excited. It was like our fam- our friend circles back together. This is beautiful. You're, And we were talking about marriage. We were talking about children. Now, I was late 30s and Bobby was a year older than me at school. So he was already 40. And I think when you're at that age, sometimes you might accelerate plans faster than you would if you were younger. So Bobby didn't have any children and the conversation of children therefore came up quicker because of our age. And before, say before I knew it, we were discussing about having a baby. It was kind of on the radar. And by chance, I got pregnant very quickly, even though I was told by doctors and nurses that wouldn't happen very quickly because of my age and, you know, various other things. Um and so here I am eight years ago now, so it was December 2015, and I'm at that point six months pregnant, doing up our house, got my two children. Everyone's excited about there's a new baby coming into the house. I'm a little bit nervous, I'll be really honest, because I'm going to be now 
I was about to turn 40. I was going to have my third child. I knew this was going to impact my career. I had no idea it was going to impact my career quite as substantially as it did. Um, but thought I'd have to have a year. I was going to take a year off for maternity leave. So even in those last few months, so in the January to the March of 2016, where I'm in those final few months, um, it was all around preparation for the baby. I was still dashing around the country in the pharmaceutical industry, thinking I need to slow this down because I'm heavily pregnant. But life was good. Life was happy. As far as I was concerned, Bobby and my relationship was in a very good place. You know, we were literally about to welcome our first child together into the world. My third child, his first child. Um, and there was absolutely no reason to think on Friday, the 4th of March, which is when my world blew up, there was literally no warning, Greg, at all that that could possibly be the day that everything was going to change. And it's a very weird thing to have such a life-changing event and yet it'd be such a routine day. I was having a week off work. I'd finished off all my emails. I'd done my out of office. I was all prepared to start maternity leave. I'm eight months pregnant. I thought everything was all in line and then the world turned on its head. <laughs> so... Was there anything leading up to this attack? Like, had you had an argument? Had there been any uh, thing that precipitated it? Uh, was there any sign of domestic violence or even control? Uh, anything that would have, as you look back on it, uh, you go, hey, um, something, something I should have noticed, but I didn't. Yeah, and that's a great question because I think that's something that I mulled over right from the start. I remember asking other people, had I missed something? So in terms of physical violence, absolutely none. Absolutely none. He hadn't threatened me. He hadn't laid a finger on me. And I never, ever would have believed that he would ever have hurt me. Um, towards the end, when I reflect back, as we do with hindsight, um, there were things that didn't make sense. So I, what came out afterwards is that Bobby, my partner at the time, who did this terrible attack, he was telling multiple lies. So he was leading almost like multiple lives. So he was living one life with his family who were of a devout religion, who didn't approve of our relationship, but telling me a different version of his life. So it's almost like there are two people. And he was telling so many lies that towards the end, I'd say in those last few weeks, I started to question, hang on, that doesn't make sense. Hold on, that you know when things don't feel right and you think, I don't feel the truth is being told to me. Um and I did start to question the week before the attack we, we didn't row very much. We weren't a couple who argued, I'll be honest, in particular. Um, sometimes we'd argue about his family not approving of us because his family wouldn't meet me. So I just said, can they not meet me if they don't like me? Fair enough. But, you know, I'm pregnant with, like for his mother, I'm pregnant with her grandchild, you know. But as it came out, his family actually didn't know I was pregnant. Um, he hadn't told them that. But the week before the attack, we had a huge row and it was very unusual for us. We had a massive row and 
you know when you're in a row and you say a lot of things and you don't necessarily know where it's come from but I remember saying different almost like bullet points of but this doesn't feel right this isn't right this isn't right this isn't right and I'd written it in whatsapp to him argument over a messaging service but he was at his mother's house when I look back at that text now all this time on everything I accused him of I was correct now he must have read that and realized that his lies were unraveling and that I was starting to realize that he wasn't quite the man that I thought he was and that's the only thing where you could say there's a sign of domestic abuse in the manipulation that he was manipulating me and everyone else about this perfect version. Everyone who met my ex-partner, if you'd met him, if anyone listening had met him, everyone would say he's educated, he's well-spoken, he's running a business, he's kind. He would never have been somebody who we think of the stereotype, and there is a stereotype around domestic abuse, he wasn't fitting that stereotype in any shape or form. So for me, when it happened, it was like a, a bomb had gone off because my head could not get round the fact that this man that I loved, trusted, was planning my life with, had made a huge decision to have a baby at 39, you know, to have a baby later in life when I'd got a good career. That was a big thing for me that he could do the ultimate betrayal. Okay, and as the thing started unraveling, and apparently you had you had left for the day, you're you're walking on the street. Do you feel that in the back of his mind that he was this was his only way out? was like, hey, wait, the world's crashing. Everybody's going to find out. My mom and dad don't even know about this relationship. Obviously, a, a different religion uh, that did not and normally believed in arranged marriages in their culture. Um, then all of a sudden, so this didn't happen in your residence. It happened on the street. Was there a hope in, as we go up to the attack, was there a hope that he was going to do this and then leave and walk away and get away with it? Yeah, 100%. Um, so that day, he went to work as normal. And this is where it gets very cold and sinister because he actually did go to work that morning. He left home. He drove to work. He was there for, he got there about 7.30 in the morning and apparently was acting totally normally, laughing, joking, talking about me, talking about the baby because... I was already having contractions. So I'd been in the hospital the week before because they thought the baby was coming early. So he was saying the baby could come any day now. Um, we're not fully ready yet because we hadn't finished everything off. We'd done the nursery, but there's still things to do. Um, but apparently he was totally normal and he left at the lunchtime and nobody at his work knew where he'd gone. He just left. But his character persona was calm collected yet he knew he was going to go commit basically commit murder that afternoon yeah it was normal he drove to our local town center um to our local little town where a very nice town by the way with low crime it's not that's a horrible area he drove there he bought his lunch greg he went to the shop and bought his lunch 
He went to the cash point machine. He went to the ATM and took money out. Dressed normally, all fine. So very much showing that he was in the town centre. Now, the police believe he said he was going to collect me from the house. He'd asked me to go to the bank with him that afternoon in that town centre. The police believe he was setting himself his alibi, that he had to be seen in the town centre. They think where he parked, there was no CCTV. So they think he was going to leave that car park, collect me, take me to somewhere. Now there's parkland bias, which has got lots of dense forest. They think he would take me somewhere like that because we would go for walks and get a coffee sometimes, the little coffee house there. They think he was going to take me there, kill me, dump me, and then go back to the town centre where obviously he's shown that he is at and say, well, I'm, you know, standing looking at his watch while I'm waiting for Natalie. Where is she? However, I'm quite an impatient woman, <laughs> which actually served in my favour this day. Bobby was running late and I'd said that I would walk to the town centre. It was a 20-minute walk. So I left the house because I was bored of waiting. I wanted to go in. I wanted to do some shopping. My best friend was getting married. I wanted to buy her card. So I leave the house and I phone him. So I'm on my cell phone and I'm walking down the driveway of our house and I call him and he answers and again very cold when you look back he was calm he was just normal he's like hi babe I'm stuck in traffic I'm on the other side of Birmingham the big city where we were living on the outskirts of so he told me he's quite a way away stuck in traffic um I told him that I'd left and I was walking down he told me that he was, He asked if I was okay because um, I'd been rushing around that day. I said I'm, I was fine. And he finished the call with, I love you. So I said, just call me when you get to the town centre. And he said, I will. He said, sorry, I should have told you I was running late. I love you. I said, I love you too. So I am 20 minutes walk away from him doing the most horrific attack on me. And I have no idea. And his final words, 20 minutes before committing such a horrific, violent attack were, I love you. So the police think that when I phoned him, he was probably in the car about to leave to come to get me. He realised that I was on my way. As horrible as this sounds, it came out in an interview that he'd been planning it for at least two weeks. In his words to the psychologist, he said, I knew I shouldn't kill her, very good of him, uh, but I felt there was no other option. I'm not quite sure where you get to that mindset that there's no other option but to murder somebody. Um, I think as I was getting very close to having the baby, he felt time was running out because he wanted to get rid of his mistake, as I think he thought that I was a lie that he couldn't cover. Um, and he wanted to do that before I had the baby. So I think he was set he was going to do it that afternoon. He wore multiple layers of clothing. He had a rucksack under his top to pad him out. So he was very big. In the rucksack, he carried spare clothes and spare shoes. He had two pairs of gloves on. He had latex gloves with gardening gloves over the top. He had two pairs of trousers. He had four tops on. And he even had very very sinister he had a black bin bag in his back pocket so what are you saying he absolutely thought i'm going to attack her 
he stabbed me through my chest 11 times at the start of the attack. So he obviously thought I was going to go down. Again, I'm very stubborn, Greg. Very stubborn. <laughs> I was like the Terminator. I was not going to go down easily. Um, so he stabbed me, obviously, multiple times, realised I wasn't going to go. But they think that he's going to do it, leave me very quickly for dead, and then strip off the clothes on the outside, put them in the black bin bag. He had spare clothes, spare shoes in his rucksack, put them on. Da-da, all done. But luckily for me, I fought very hard, even though I was eight months pregnant. I did fight very hard when he grabbed me. He grabbed me from behind. It was horrific. Um, and did you, know, did you know he was the one that was attacking you? No. So basically, I I went on my walk to the town centre. There's a very big church and a big churchyard. And you can either walk around the front of the church, which is quite a long walk, and it was raining, or you can cut behind the church graveyard, which is quite a secluded alleyway. Not a horrible alleyway, but, you know, it's tree-lined, but it's quiet. Now, because it was raining, and that's the quicker route, I thought I was getting wet. I had an umbrella, but my baby bump was sticking out. I was, and I thought, I'm just going to go down the alleyway because this is getting wet. Um, and I was halfway down the alleyway when I heard him running behind me. Now, obviously, as a, especially as a female on your own, you're in an alleyway, you're heavily pregnant, and you can hear footsteps running. My heart was pounding. And when I looked, all I could see was this very scruffy guy, very big. He was quite a slim guy. But because of all that padding and the, the rucksack, he looked very big. But he had the hood pulled right over his head and he was head down. So I thought, oh, my gosh, who's this man? I sped up to try and get away. I did get out of the alleyway into this side road. But as he jumped me, he literally came up right behind me and he jumped on top of me from behind and pulled me backwards. So I couldn't really see him. I thought I was being mugged. I thought he wanted my handbag because it's a natural thing that I've got my handbag. He was there grabbing me. So I'm trying to actually take my handbag off when he pulled the knife. He didn't say a word. And within a few, half a minute, few seconds half a minute he pulled the knife that you mentioned and then he stabbed me straight through my chest so it was very very quick and there was no hesitation from him about what he was going to do and you think he's doing this to a woman that he has got out of bed with that morning cuddled up with the night before he'd been lying across my lap talking to his own baby through my tummy saying hello it's daddy and he's grabbing me and doing that kind of very personal violent attack, but not saying anything. He didn't say a word. So at that point, I didn't know it was him. Um, two men wrestled with him. I was screaming for help. I couldn't break free. I was begging this one man. I could see a man ahead of me, and I was literally begging him, going, please, please help me, please help me. He very bravely, his name is John. He came running. Another man, Tony, I love Tony. I love both of them. I'm I'm friends with all the people who helped save me now. And Tony and John grabbed him and pulled him down. But unfortunately, we were on a hill. It was wet. We all fell over the way they pulled him. And I find myself now lying on him, 
but my back onto him. So literally he's pulled me backwards with him. So he's lying on his back and I'm lying on top of him. But again, I'm facing away because my back is on his stomach. He continues to attack me. They try to stop him. They wrestle his arm with the knife. And at one point he let go of me. And I always say to everyone listening, whoever I speak to, I say, we are incredible as human beings. We are literally incredible because our survival instinct is phenomenal. So as soon as he let go of me, I don't remember making a conscious decision about it, but I got to my feet. I'd probably been stabbed 17 times at this point and I managed to stagger away, but I collapsed. I didn't get very far and I collapsed and when I came round, still determined not to get up, I crawled to a brick wall and leant against the wall and was curled up. If you can imagine a small child curled up, trying to hide with their knees up and cuddled, I was like that. Um, I actually felt guilty, guilty that I'd left these two men who come to help me and I'd left them with this attacker with the knife. But when I looked up to where they were, they were still lying on the pavement, alive and relatively, they were injured, but luckily not life-threateningly injured. But the attacker was on his feet, or obviously now, as I know, my partner was on his feet walking towards me. Now, at that point, I did get a glimpse of his face because people say, well, did you see his face when he walked towards you? And this is where, again, our brains are quite clever, really. I got a glimpse of his face. I was a little delirious because I was obviously in and out of consciousness. I was awake, but, you know, I was losing blood rapidly. I was in a very poorly state. I remember thinking, oh, it's Bobby. How, how does he know I'm here? You know, I, I thought he'd come to save me, that he'd miraculously traced me and come. However, then my brain, I noticed that he got the knife. And because I was in denial that it could possibly be him, I was thinking, well, no, it's too fat for him. He's too big. He's too padded. He looks too scruffy. It's just a man who looks like him. Now, for the rest of the attack, and he was in front of me for a lot of that end part of the attack, when I had my therapy with a brilliant psychologist, I had an amazing psychologist for three and a half years, I said to her, I said, when we did our therapy and we went into it deeply, I said, he's in front of me. Why am I not looking at his face? And I was getting quite upset. I was like, he's he's in front of me. I'm not looking. And she said, Nasty, that's your brain very cleverly protecting you, that your brain probably knew it was him, but the only way you could survive was to block it out. And when I think about it, I did, Greg, make a conscious decision not to actually stare at his face because my brain couldn't take that information. I had to, I had to survive. So all I had to think of is this man is trying to kill me quite clearly. I have two children who I'd left at school that morning. I'd taken to school. They were only six and 10 years of age. All I thought about was my two little babies at school thinking I'm a mum. And I was shouting that to him. I'm going, I'm a mum. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Made no difference. He said nothing. He just carried on with what he was doing. Um, And I believe it was the faith and focus of thinking about my children that kept me so strong to fight on and do no whatever I had to do to stay alive. And after nine minutes, he was ripped off me by another passerby who'd heard the screams for help. And luckily the police arrived on scene. 
just after that and they arrested him. So it's nine minutes long. It's a very, very extended attack. Did you finally lose consciousness and woke up in the hospital or was you, you awake during the whole process? Yeah. Um, I was actually conscious for a lot of it. So when I was doing first aid, um, I had to assist at one point because they needed me. I had so many stab wounds that they were doing their best to keep everything contained and try and stem as much as they could. And I was awake. There were periods where I'd pass out and I'd come back again. Um, But no, I was talking to the police officer. She kept saying to me, Natalie, keep talking to me. Um, You'll love this one bit. (laughs) This one bit. There's a McDonald's nearby to what I, I was attacked. <laughs> and they, they felt that I needed some fluid because my blood pressure was dropping very low. I was losing a lot of blood and and obviously I was going in and out of consciousness. So they wanted to get some sugar and fluid into me. So they sent somebody to McDonald's to get a Coca-Cola. They come back with this Coca-Cola. Now, bearing in mind, I am near death, as probably close to death as you're going to get. She gives it to me. She says, Natalie, she's holding it. She says, Natalie, take a sip. I want you to drink. And I said, what is it? She goes, it's Coca-Cola. And I actually asked, I went, but is it diet? (laughs) She went, no, Natalie. I went, but I only, I actually went, but I only drink diet. (laughs) She said, Natalie, just drink the drink. So even though I was close to death, I was still thinking about the sugar and calorie content of the drink I was being given. But, um, Luckily, we we have a brilliant helicopter ambulance service here and the helicopter was called and they landed and they were told to expect that I wasn't going to actually be conscious. They thought that my heart would have stopped because my blood pressure was so low. They couldn't believe that I was conscious when they came into the land. There had been a land ambulance arrived first and the land ambulance literally said to them, she's going to go you know her blood pressure is so low she's going to go so they were fully expecting me to be gone I wasn't and they made a very brave decision to airlift me immediately so my one lung was fully collapsed my right lung was fully collapsed I'd still got all of these wounds my blood pressure was dropping by the second and they said we'd never airlift somebody like that normally you're heavily pregnant you're on one lung you've got these extensive injuries but they said, if we didn't, you were going to die. So we airlift, they airlifted me immediately. And I remember them taking off and us flying to the hospital. Again, a silly moment. The things we do in trauma is just ridiculous. <laughs> As we're flying to the hospital, I actually remember thinking, I don't like flying. <laughs> and I was thinking, better not tell them, but I don't like flying. <laughs> um, and we landed at the hospital it was like a film being run through corridors with the lights flying over my head. I remember them shouting straight to theatre. And I remember the surgeon standing there when I was pushed into the room. He spoke to me for a few moments and he said, Natalie, I'm going to put you to sleep now and you won't wake up till at least tomorrow. Um, and I remember just nodding. And the next thing was, you know, the big lot of anaesthetic going in. And I'll, I'll be honest, Greg, at that point, I remember feeling exhausted because I'd fought for so long at this point. I could barely breathe. If you have a lung collapse, it feels like somebody's holding their hand over your mouth and you just can't get the air in. 
so I've been fighting to breathe. I was trying to stay calm. I was trying to stay focused on just keeping alive. And I was so, so exhausted that when he said to me, Nastly, we're going to put you to sleep now, the relief was immense because I just thought, someone else can take over now. <laughs> had you had any indication of how bad the wounds were? Um, I knew, as ridiculous as it sounds, I knew from the looks on people's faces because, you know, when people look at you, so when the emergency workers were there, everybody who looked at me, they were not great at hiding the horror of what they were looking at. Um, at and I'll just put a trigger warning here, but it's one little detail I'm just going to say, but it's quite important to say about how extensive it was. So just a little warning ahead for anyone who might feel a little bit squeamish. But I was asked to put my hand on my baby bump. So they got me to hold my hand. And my intestine had actually come out of one of my stab wounds. I had to hold them at the side of the road. Um, and they were having to stem the my wrist because he'd actually purposely held me down and cut me through my main artery in my wrist. So I knew for a split second when the attack finished, I remember thinking, thank God I'm still here. I remember thinking, I'm alive. He, he's not killed me. It was about two minutes after that it sunk in oh, my word, I may still die. And I think that then hit me like a train of, I'm not out of the woods just because he stopped his attack. And at one point, I did have that moment where people say, whatever it will be, everything went sheet white, very, very bright white. And the police officer who's holding my chest was literally with her hands holding my chest together because of all these stab wounds. I was saying to her, Cassie, her, her name was Cassie, this police officer, I was saying, I, I can't see your face because all I could see was a black outline of her. And I was going, and I was getting very panicked because everything was bright white apart from this black outline of her. It was literally like a pencil outline. And at that point, I wonder how close I was because um, I lost consciousness, but then I came around again, but then the panic started to really set in and I had to fight that and I had to make a conscious decision to stop panicking because I could barely breathe because I realised, actually, I could die here. I could die. We're going to take a short commercial break. And on the other side of this break, Natalie, I want to, you, you've just gone under. Uh, and then when you come back to, uh, and then we're going to talk about how this uh, event has changed your outlook on life and your mission in life. You will not want to miss the, the second half of this story. We'll be right back after this short commercial break. Hang with us. From HCI Publishing, that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years, and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book 
that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back. Uh, we have Natalie with us, uh, the author of Still Standing. And uh, Natalie, if you wouldn't mind, hold that book up. There it is. And uh, there's the name. So you can spell that name out when you look for it on Amazon. And it is there with an unbelievable amount of reviews um, and all great reviews. Uh, Natalie, now we, we left you before the commercial break uh, with the anesthesiologist, the physician saying we're going to put you uh, to sleep now, and you felt that relief of, okay, I'll let somebody else take it from here. Uh, how did that, when was your next memory after that? And to my knowledge, if I remember the story right, uh, with seeing your baby lying next to you, but go ahead and tell. Uh, well, yeah, so the next thing I know, very blearily waking up, I was in critical care, so I'm an intensive care unit. There's pipes and tubes coming out of me nothing like the film okay so let me make that clear to everyone listening you know when people come out of a fit in a film out of a coma they look beautiful and they wake up and they go oh where am i nothing like that i was dribbling with tubes hanging out of me i looked a terrible state <laughs> nothing like the film but uh like in the films but i come around and there's a nurse and a doctor standing by me they're asking me if i knew where i was which i said i did they then broke the incredible news. The first thing they tell me is, Natalie, you have a baby. You have a daughter that she survived. So my brain is thinking, what now? I was stabbed three times in the stomach. So nobody thought that she was going to survive. We all thought she'd passed. It was kind of something we didn't talk much about when they were doing first aid on me. But they did ask a couple of times, can you feel the baby move? Which I couldn't. So we all took it. So for me, it was quite a shocked process. This is incredible. My daughter survived. But then they did say, because actually she wasn't by my side, they said, but she's in a different hospital. So they'd had to take her to a totally different hospital. She's in intensive care for a neonatal unit. She's in a coma. And we'll have to be really honest with you, she sustained significant brain injury and she might not survive the next 48 hours. So it goes from, wow, you've got a baby, to but she's not here she's in some a totally different place and she's fighting for her life which is a mother to know that you can't be with your baby and she's in a different hospital so my brain's processing all of this and obviously I'm still very bleary I've come out of a coma you you know you've been heavily sedated anesthetized and then I'm looking around for my family because again in the films everyone's family is sitting around them when they come out of a coma um I was a little put out nobody was there apart from a lot of police officers I saw a lot of people in suits which were the detectives and there were uniformed police officers and I was told Natalie because it hit the news you can imagine this was making massive news national actually some international news about this attack they couldn't have anyone talk to me because it might change what I said so they said 
You can't speak to your family until we've interviewed you, which is a very lonely, isolating feeling because you want, you know, you want to comfort people you love. And then the police talked to me and that's when they told me that the person they'd arrested at the scene was my partner, that it was Bobby and that he was being held and being charged with attempted murder of me and of our daughter. And Greg, I can't explain. It just blew apart. And I I didn't scream. I didn't. I think I was so broken. It's quite sad when I think about it. I, I just lay there and cried silently. I just remember the tears falling down and just going onto the pillow because I I just went numb. I think everything went numb. It was such a horrible scenario. You know, my daughter's fighting for her life. She might not survive. And actually the man that you loved and trusted, who kissed you goodbye, spoke to you 20 minutes before the attack, is the man responsible for all of this utter destruction. So it was a very, very tough place. My first question to them was why? And nobody could tell me that. Nobody could tell me why. And it took a long time to get to the why. And that was a really difficult thing for somebody like myself, who always wants a logical answer to what things are happening. So So how long were you in the hospital um, before being released? You know, I say about this stubborn side. Okay. <laughs> um, I was in major. Tra- I was in critical care for best part of a week. Then I was in a major trauma ward on a separate bay to keep an eye on me. I was then transferred to the other hospital so I could be with my daughter because I really wanted to be at that hospital. So there's an agreement I'd have a special room there. Um, I kind of accelerated my recovery because of it and two weeks after the attack I asked to be discharged and they didn't want to discharge me I'll be honest but I had my two other daughters at home who really needed mommy and come what may I really wanted to leave my daughter was stable enough to leave as well so at two weeks after we were discharged I went home Unfortunately, because we were still, especially myself, I'd got so many injuries. I was at the hospital four times a week, if that four days. So Monday to Friday were pretty much taken up with me having to go back in the day to the hospital. But it meant that I could be at home for my children and that they had mummy home. And I was very aware I had two children who were very traumatised, who were only six and ten years of age and they needed their mum. And... I very quickly had to put on that mask. I had to stand tall. And even though I was completely and utterly broken, I had to be mum and I had to get up and I had to have a shower and I had to be present for them because their little world had blown up too. And to me, that was more important to make sure I could support their world and I will get on with my injuries separately. The strength of a mother, the power of motherhood mm-hmm. and a, a woman in these kind of situations sometimes are miraculous because of that drive. I have to, you know, us men tend to be more self-centered. Uh, the, the, the women tend to be more loving and caring to, you know, and you had to get home. Uh, looking back on all of that um, and the years that have passed, are all three daughters doing well and adjusted? And is everything 
as normal as normal can be. It's been a tough journey and really I guess it contributes, which we'll go on to in a bit I know about the work that I do because we got a lot of support from my children. They had mental health support. I paid for a private psychologist. That was, you know, they had support at school. They had mentors. We have a very, I'm very blessed with a very strong family unit around who were very supportive. So all what we call protective factors were put around my children. But I'll be honest, my middle daughter, um, and she knows that I say that she's 14 now, but she did have behavioural issues that started to show because her little brain, she was six and a half when it happened. She thought she was going to lose her mummy at six and a half. Um, and the trauma, I could see manifesting in behavioural responses that were coming through. Um, so we've had a lot of work and a lot of interventions there and a lot of support. At times, I can still see how the trauma affects, especially my two older ones. Um, my eldest is 18. Um, she's looking at universities at the moment. She's an amazing, all my children are amazing, to be fair. I'm very biased, but they are. Um, but my eldest, although she's very calm, she's very like a dad, very logical. He's in the fire service. He's quite senior. He's very logical, precise protocols. She's very like him. But I tell you what, if she thinks that any of us are in danger, even if she thinks her little sister might be I don't know, swallowed a drink funny and she might be coughing, she panics straight away and that's where I can see the trauma come through because it's almost a accelerated response to something bad happening whereas the rest of the time she's calm but do you know what they're incredible children my youngest despite the fact the little baby I was told might not walk might not talk she is walking she's definitely talking she's like a mom <laughs> she definitely talks um she is loved. All my children are loving. We're a very tight unit. Um, but Greg, she's defied so much. There might be some learning difficulties that might come through. There's little bits and pieces, but she's at school. I'm so proud of all three of my children, but I can definitely see how that, watching my children go through that. And I, they were in a fortunate position that I had the money to pay for the support with psychologists that I could see how trauma still affected them, which then made me think, well, what about vulnerable kids who come from poorer backgrounds, poorer social economic backgrounds, and who's looking out for them? Who's supporting them? You know, because actually they could be labelled as the naughty kid when they're not the naughty kid. They're just a kid who's been traumatised. you got some baggage that nobody knows about. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I will have a, a few minutes, but... Um... After this, you're, you've recovered. Uh, the media obviously knows, the, the entire country knows what's going on. Uh, everybody, your family, your friends, the, the whole inner circle, everybody around you knows. When did you decide, hey, I'm going to take what has happened to me? Because we could actually spend a, another hour going through uh, all the the, the the trauma of the court case, the the imprisonment of uh your your lover that made this attack um but how did it change your life as far as the rest of your life you look at it now and you go hey wait this this happened to me this is the crossroads mm -hmm. now there's something greater that i have been created for that i want to fulfill because of what happened 
and because of your endurance and resiliency in overcoming this attack, what is that greater purpose now that you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes and go, I want to accomplish this, and this is why I'm created? What would that be? Well, it's funny because actually those thoughts about changing my life happened as early as in hospital because I think I took a reflection. Remember, I told you my life was very crazy, very busy. I was away a lot with pharmaceutical industry. I suddenly realized, okay, I'm earning a very good salary. I've got the lovely healthcare, private pension, private healthcare, everything. But I thought if I had died at that point, what would I have actually achieved? Okay, financial security, but in terms of making the positive mark or supporting the world. But also I wasn't spending enough time with my children. I was away in hotels so much. And I think it was a real wake up call to say, Natalie, what do you value? And I I always implore everybody to think about what is it you really value? We have to earn money, but what is it that you value? I started off with the motivational speaking, trying to share the story, as you quite rightly said, in that capacity of, resilience and showing people that it can overcome everything and then a school for children who've been excluded so children have been kicked out of mainstream school they go to this special unit and they contact me and said Nancy we know you're a speaker we know you've been stabbed we have quite a problem here in the UK with knife crime they said will you come and talk to our students about what it's like to be a victim and I'll be honest Greg I was like oh oh (laughs) I, I hadn't thought about this um did it the response from the kids was huge and then I started talking to the young people they wrote to me they wrote letters they made me little gifts it was so amazing their response such a positive response and then we started opening up conversations about trauma and how it affected them and they were quite honest with their story because I'd been honest with mine they felt and that's when I my purpose and values started to form and my vision for the future which is I started my, as you say, social enterprise, which is a not-for-profit company. So um, it's not about being a big commercial company. It's working with young people to help them think about the choices they're making in life and then also help empower them that you have that worth. It doesn't matter what you've been through. And try and help build that belief and thinking in them that there is a better life ahead and hopefully that they'll look at my story and go well she was at the absolute pit of hell the depths of that I mean I literally was at the bottom of the bottom after the the attack I I struggled to keep going every day I always said I felt like I was in a stormy ocean keeping my head above the water but I felt I kept sinking but saying to me even when we're in that really low situation we can still get back and have an amazing life and I suddenly realised how many vulnerable young people we have who are making terrible choices because of their vulnerability. They might get caught up in a gang. They might get caught up in other forms of criminality or exploitation. And it's trying to talk to them about their thoughts, their choices, their beliefs about themselves, their coping mechanisms. And that's become my vision. My, My goal, my ultimate goal in life is to have what I wake up and still dream and will happen. It will because I'm (laughs) determined is to have a center for young people who've experienced trauma, probably through I'll start trauma through domestic abuse, because that's quite a wide area as it is. So children who've experienced violence, for example, within the home who are very scared 
um, who then will show behavioural issues, as I've seen myself with my own daughter, you know, where she experienced challenges. But these kids do it on a bigger scale because they haven't got the support. So a centre where these young people can come, empower themselves. I'll have specialists there who can do maybe trauma therapy with them. And it'd be obviously completely free for that young person. So it'd have to be a funded organisation, which I'm still planning. But it'd be a really holistic said you know they'll go in there and it'll be a safe comforting place where they really feel they can properly relax if we want children to regulate and calm we need to give them that environment and that is my goal and vision for the future so for these last four and a half years yeah is it longer than that probably um I've been running my um, social enterprise, working with these young people. I work as well with children who haven't been traumatised because I think it's important. As you quite rightly said, there's kids who had trauma that we don't know about. So having these conversations very early with across the board. So I do a lot of talks in schools, a lot of talks in colleges, a lot of talks with vulnerable young people. I go into young adult prisons and talk to them. I talk to them about the impact of being a victim and it helps them reflect. And also we can talk about trauma there as well and how trauma can affect us. And it's just become my life. It's just working with young people is not something I envisaged, I'll be honest. Um, but when I had that connectivity from that first talk I ever gave and the way the young people responded with their letters and their gifts, it just made me think everything, a young person, they, they just say it's relatable. Nasty, you're very honest and we can see your pain and I don't think they ever see an adult always being that vulnerable, but I will show that vulnerability to them, but also show them the strength and resilience and young people. It is, it doesn't earn me a massive amount of money. Um, It's what I love. Do you think the youth as we, as we close out the program, do you think the youth today, because you, you talked about your emphasis prior to the attack was the same emphasis that many people have uh, work, make money, can all the money, then sit on the can and uh, try to get more. Uh, And I don't believe I've ever been at a bedside of someone dying that said, I wish I spent more time at the office Mm -hmm. because we've all get in that rap wheel and we just run and run and run and run and run. Do you think this and social media, Facebook and all this stuff that the youth are involved today has put them in a mode of becoming an adult, uh, I have a drive, I have to do this, I have to check in, I have to make sure. And I don't believe that when something like this happens to a young person uh, that they need to overcome, that they're going to end up saying one day, oh, I wish I had more Facebook followers or people with more likes. It's not about that. And I think when they hear this type of story, they're going to open their eyes to go, wait, there is more to life and what would that be if you could talk and whisper in the ear of the teenager today all around the world what would that message be from you of saying hey wait one of the two of the most important things in life are what would that advice be from you to them believe in the incredible person that you are and the positive impact you can have in your world and for those around you. And that will give you, it doesn't matter about the likes. It doesn't matter about 
the fakeness of it. I mean, social media is so fake and, you know, people will post a photo and they they could be sat there crying straight after they've taken the photograph, but it would be a happy, smiling face. And I just say, believe in your own integrity and values and the amazing person that we all individually are and that we can achieve anything because anything is possible. I, I truly believe that in my book, and I don't know if it'll come up on the camera. I will show them this picture of where it's a photo of me with my baby in intensive care. And I'm very, very much broken. And then I flick to this photo where I'm holding one of the awards that I got. That's at a football match, a soccer match, sorry for you, <laughs> for the Americans, obviously with you listening to soccer. Um, and I always show them that to say, I went from that broken individual and that photo at the Soccer match was in 2019. So that's three years. It was March 2000. So three years after being a broken person, that was one of the awards that I'd won. And I say, anything is possible. It might, I always say, there might be a long tunnel with a tiny speck of light. And we might, but hang on to that speck of light. Hang on to that speck of light. Focus on that. Keep reminding yourself it is there and it will grow bigger and bigger. Wow. When were you first contacted by uh, the queen? Or I'm sure she doesn't just call you and say, hey, Natalie, this is the queen. <laughs> How did that come about? And we only have very, very limited time, but I'm going to I'm going to ask the radio station to elongate the interview and allow us to <laughs> finish all this up. But uh, they're, they're gracious. They, they will do that. Um, how did how did that contact come about? Well, you get a letter, a very formal looking letter, basically, that says um, something about on Her Majesty's service. Now, Greg, I have a very natural guilt complex quite clearly because I thought I was in trouble for something. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, thought, I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? And I opened it and I couldn't believe it saying you have been nominated for an MBE, member of the British Empire Medal, Um it has just been approved by Her Majesty the Queen, the Prime Minister, um, who is Boris Johnson at the time, but the Prime Minister has approved it. He has passed it to the Queen, who has put her approval. And then you have to say whether you would like to accept it or not. So you have this communication with the palace and there's some communication with the Cabinet Office, the government, and then it's announced on the Queen's it was her, her formal birthday, the official one in June, which was also her Platinum Jubilee. So this list comes out. I have to keep it secret. They told me in April, and you're not allowed to tell anybody. Nobody. It's horrific. You can't tell it. Can't, couldn't tell my mum. And on the 1st of June, they announced it. It goes formally in the newspapers of London and nationally. Then you have to wait for your medal. Now, obviously, in June, Her Majesty was still with us. In the September, Her Majesty passed away, which was a massive shock. And that delayed a lot of the medals, therefore, being given. Because you then have to go to one of the palaces or castles to get your medal officially. You can use the title of MBE straight away, but you have to wait. So there's a bit of a delay because of everything happening with the Queen's funeral and King Charles coming in and everything else. So I actually didn't get my medal till February this year. It was amazing at Windsor Castle. Very surreal day very proud day I have my medal I have a somewhere just down here that's terrible somewhere down here there's a certificate in a tube that's signed by Her Majesty I've actually got I've got Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's autograph which is quite cool <laughs> so, in terms of autographs um 
So, yeah, so that was that. But then in the September when Her Majesty passed away, I'm walking my dog. I've got a Dalmatian, a spotty dog, beautiful girl. She's crazy. So I'm walking her trying to keep her calm because she's all over the place. And I've got my AirPods in and a phone call comes through. It's a Saturday and it's from an unknown number. And I'll be honest, Greg, I nearly didn't answer it. because, Oh, gosh, it's a withheld number. It's going to be a sales call. I answered it and a very posh man said, hello, is that Natalie Kairosh? I'm like, yes. Uh, this is the cabinet office. And I was like, <laughs> thinking it was a wind-up. I was about to hang up on them. <laughs> and um, they said, obviously, her late majesty has passed away and her funeral is going to be, you know, in the next week. Um, we would like to invite you to her majesty's funeral. <laughs> I'm walking my dog, Greg, like <laughs> thinking... I'm looking at the dog. The dog's looking at me because I, I suddenly put on my best English accent. I'm going, oh, yes, that would be very lovely. I don't speak like that. But uh, my dog is looking at me as if I'm some traitor of who am I? Who is this woman walking me? That's not my owner. Um, and, yeah, so then I get all the official letter come through. The invite came to the post. I had to literally take it in they said we have to give it to you in your hand when the postman delivers it it has to be you there had to be a photograph to prove because it's such an important invite you have to have id and then yeah on the day of the funeral i go to london the day before i turn up very early i do an interview for bbc breakfast obviously bbc news is very big here um and i go in to the funeral and find that i happen to be sat on the front row so Every world leader, including your president, President Biden, came in with the first lady. Very surreal moment thinking, that's the president of the United States and he's walking past me with the first lady, who was very elegant. She was beautifully dressed, beautifully turned out. And um, yeah, these world leaders are coming in and then the royal family. So literally, if I'd put my hand out, which you obviously don't because you get taken out. Um, if I'd put my hand out, I could have touched King Charles or Prince William. You know, Prince Harry was there with um, with Meghan Markle. You know, uh, it was all of the family. And I think it was very emotional to see you realise this is a family who have lost a very dear family member. And it's very public the funeral because of who she was but there was also that connectivity you could see with King Charles the upset in his face when he left Westminster Abbey and I actually made contact eye contact with Prince Harry weirdly as he walked out I happened to be looked I'd got tears in my eyes it was very emotional you know and I actually for a split second looked at him directly and just sort of nodded and he'd got tears in his eyes and that's that real wake-up call and memory that hold up remembering that this is their family. You know, for Prince Harry, Prince William, that's their grandmother who they love dearly. For King Charles, that's his mother. You know, such a big character in all of our lives, especially here in the UK. But for them, that was actually their family funeral as well. So it was a very amazing occasion. And if you see me, I've got a little black hat. You can recognise the hair. I'm about midway from the front door to the golden screen uh, that they have, that they walk through, like golden arch in the abbey. And you'll see me. As you go down, it was, I was on the left. <laughs> what is the, um, as we as we close, um, 
the book, did that just, did you automatically think I'm going to chronicle this or did somebody have to twist your arm or was it something that you thought, hey, wait, this is a story that needs to be told so it will live on to help other people? How did that come about in your mind? Yeah, so for the book, it's weirdly, weird. we're still standing uh, here. Um, we're still standing. I, do you know what? It was about the truth at first. You know, you talked about the media talking about it because it was being spoken about on a national and international level. The story was being discussed. And there was a lot of, as happens with the media, a lot of things that were incorrect, inconsistent. And I'm very much one about the truth. I really value truth and honesty. It's a massive massive thing for me always has been it's a real big thing um and I was just like I want the truth out there so the first driver for me to write the book was actually because I wanted to chronicle what life was like before because people made a lot of assumptions about what my life would have been like with Bobby what happened during the attack but most importantly what happened afterwards and as you know from reading the book at the end it finishes with me facing my ex-partner in prison because I was always determined to face him, always, always determined to face him. So the final chapter is very much about that day when I face him. And as I went through it, people were saying, Natalie, this will help other people. This will help other people realise. And I think I'm quite raw in the book in, because I wrote it, I started writing it a year after what happened. So it, I think it's a really good, honest reflection of how I was at that point. So you get a very raw honesty. There's things at times that people find quite difficult because I talk about the grieving process I had to go through, which was essentially that I had to grieve my ex-partner because as far as I was concerned, the Bobby I thought I knew was dead, you know, because he didn't exist. He He, he just didn't exist. And I had to grieve that. I had to grieve the loss of a loved one. So it's very honest. It's hopefully got a bit of humour in it. Um, I've got a terrible sense of humour. Hopefully that will come through. But it's really about that journey and that journey of resilience, of building back up. I set myself a lot of little goals along the way. And I think that's really important for all of us in our life. Always set two goals for your year ahead. They don't have to be massive. They don't have to be, I'm going to be CEO of the next largest company. It could be, I'm going to move house because I want to live always wanted to live in the countryside, I want to live to somewhere more rural, or I want to live in a big city, whatever it is that you want to do, but have something that you can work towards and focus. And as you say, when you get up, for me, it's now about this trauma centre for young people, but you're going to get up and have that in your head. So the book evolved that way. And it took me two years to write it. In 2019, it was published. I was very fortunate, a publisher pretty much came to me, as in I was nearly finishing it I wanted to write it myself I therefore waited until it was almost complete before approaching a publisher I was introduced to a publisher for advice and then they literally invited me to London and said please Natalie we love your story we love your book can we publish it I was a bit like okay <laughs> okay um and they published it it's gone across the world. United States of America, we need to get it there um, because it's gone to Australia and New Zealand and Singapore and South Africa. On my shelf, I have a version in Estonian. Um, so I've got an Estonian version of it. Um, and it's just a real book about an honest journey. You're not going to hear it all being a, this wonderful. Oh, isn't this easy? 
journey of recovery is not easy. It's not linear. You will have ups, you will have downs. To this day, I will still have ups and downs. I'm a human being, but it's about where you have that focus, where you have that drive and that never giving up. And I hope that really comes through in Still Standing. And that's where the title came from. If you know the song by Elton John, Sir Elton John, Still Standing. Sir Elton is, yeah, my inspiration for the title, but yeah. Emily, thank you so much. I encourage everybody to get this book. This 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 will not disappoint you. It takes you from point one to the last page. It is absolutely uh, overwhelming, and it is a not put down book. You, once you start it, you do not want to put it down. Thank you for being with us. I'd love to have you back. Uh, anything that we can do, if you're ever on this side of the pond, please let us know. Uh, but I would love to have you back on the program to talk more about your work and the importance that uh, youth need today. Uh, everybody needs a champion. Everybody okay. needs somebody to look up to. Everybody needs somebody that can give them encouragement that no matter what I'm going through, I can get through this. And Natalie, for so many people around the world, you are that champion. Thank you so much. Thank you. As you say, everyone needs their own cheerleader. And I think if we can be that for somebody else, the world would be a lot better place. Thank you for being with us today. As Thank I you. close every program, I always do it the same exact way. Uh, it may look dark uh, behind me, but I want to let you know the sun's going to come up. No matter what you're going through in life right now, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going to face today, I promise you, as surely as Natalie is shaking her head yes to, that there's always, always hope. And you will, if you determine and say inside of yourself, you will find yourself still standing on the other side when it's over. Thank you so much for joining us today. Join us next week for another edition of Breaking the Silence from Houston, Texas. God bless. Good night. Good night. Wow. Thank you, Natalie. <laughs> I cannot I cannot applaud you enough. And uh, may, uh, may you just receive all those things and may you just continue to, to, to come to you. And uh, I'm going to send this off to the radio station now and they will edit it. I will send you a copy of it. Uh, audio and video feel free to do with it whatever you will and it will run american time uh 8 8 p.m um central time sunday night and mm -hmm. then uh hopefully people will be able to reach out to you and uh we will i'll put all your website information on the the bbs radio station uh site so when as they see it they'll be able to see hey if you want to contact natalie website to get her book all those things will be right there for their benefit thank you have you got both websites as well because my my social enterprise is one website address and then my uh there's q inspire um so it's the www.qinspire.co.uk and then the other one is w i can just put it in the chat hold on a second that's probably easier i2qb.org which is about the youth work so I don't know if you can see that so there's that one and then www.qinspire.co.uk
Okay, fantastic. Okay, I'll make sure. You inspired. Yeah, that's what I have. Okay, fantastic. I will do it. And thank, thank you, you so Ellie. much. It's just amazing, and time goes so quick, and I can talk for England. So. <laughs> Well, that's great. I, I appreciate the time and we will be in touch and it'll probably be uh, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week when they edit that or when they uh, actually download it. And then uh, it'll be on every ne next week. It'll be on every podcast, too, because it's a live radio show uh, that goes around the world. And then it goes out into podcasts and about 115 different platforms. So you'll be able to talk into your Hey Siri run this show. And it'll automatically come up, Spotify, uh, all the different platforms. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And hopefully one day I will be over. I've never been to Texas, so it'd be great to come over to, yeah. It's, uh, uh, well, love to one, meet you. <laughs> it'd be lovely to meet you too. Thank you so Thank much. You, Take we'll care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.